Hey everyone, welcome to the Mass Construction Show with today's guest, Bill Perry, Managing Director at JS Held. I'm your host, Joe Kelly, and this is the podcast about all things construction in Massachusetts and beyond. In this episode, Bill and I discuss good scheduling practices from building a baseline CMP, incorporating change management, resource loading, and what happens when a project goes wrong. Bill brings a ton of experience to the table, and there's a lot to learn on this one. Enjoy the show. Hey, Bill, welcome to the Mass Construction Show. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yep. Uh, so, Bill, I wanted to have you on because what you, you know, you're in a little bit of a, a niche. Uh, and I always like when there's um, people within the industry that aren't just kind of fitting into, you know, the normal roles. Like, I, actually, that, and I didn't have this scripted, but that's actually why I started all this because I felt like being in construction, you some degree can end up in on an island or in a silo or whatever you want to use where like you're a superintendent, you're out on that job and that's all you know, but there's all this other stuff that goes into starting a project and closing out a project that if you only know your little niche, you know, right. it, it's, um, I think it can hamper your career and also it's a great business. Like why not find out all this other stuff that goes on either right. after, you know, you turn a building over or, you know, what was the process in buying that piece of land, you know, mm -hmm. what went into it? How long did it take? How'd you get a permit? Like all those things. So mm -hmm. I really like to bring in people that are um, in those niche spaces doing things that the vast majority of us might not be aware even exist, right? Um, so I, I don't like to start this way, but because people might not be familiar, what is um, what does JS Held do? So JS Held, um, they are a global consulting firm and they have uh, expertise in construction and environmental health and safety, forensic accounting, accounting and economics. They're, uh, they have water and fire restoration equipment and forensic architecture and engineers. Um, so they get involved in lots of different types of, uh, lots of different types of projects for lots of different types of companies all over the world. Uh, we're broken down mainly into three groups where we have the advisory group, which includes construction advisory and surety. I reside in the construction advisory group. We have the forensic accounting and economics group. And then we have the technical services group, which includes equipment, environmental. That's where forensic architecture and engineering is. Uh, we also have the building consulting and the fire origin and cause investigations. JS Held originally started as a building consulting firm working for insurance companies. And they would get in uh, involved in many of the uh, major claims. Uh, uh, John Held was called, uh, was one of the first calls made by the insurance companies when 9-11 happened. So mm -hmm. we, we get involved in uh, um, a lot of major catastrophes. We had a number of people that went down, go down to uh, do damage assessments for all of the hurricanes that hit down on the South Coast and in different areas. So that's a big part of the practice. But uh, three or four years ago, they started to branch off and get involved in construction advisory. They started the construction advisory practice. And uh, although JS Held is approaching 1,200 employees worldwide, huh. construction advisory, which is where I am, we're about 125 right now, and we're growing. I think we started the year, I think we started this year with 44 people. And we're ending the year with just over just about 125. So they're growing very fast. Mm. Um, they have, as I said, they have offices throughout the United States. We're in Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, Georgia, Colorado. Uh, there's offices in Europe, in London, Germany, and Spain. We have mm. offices in Asia PAC, um, Malaysia, and Singapore. We're down in South America and Chile and Colombia. And also we're in Mexico. Uh, but, mm. you know, think of JS Held as as a company that provides unrivaled technical expertise with experts in all different areas. In fact, the catchphrase for the company is find your expert. Hmm. So, you know, I've been involved mainly with uh, just construction my whole career, but it's exciting for me and very interesting for me to get involved with a company that has expertise all over the place. So we have metallurgists, we have chemists, we have epidemiologists, we have geotechnical engineers, we have all different types of people that get involved in all different types of issues. So it makes it really interesting for me. Yeah, that uh, reminds me. So I have a friend that uh, works at Travelers and they have a, 
like they they have a forensic lab group, right? Yeah. That all they're doing is when there's a claim that comes in, they might put together a flashing detail to figure out, okay, well, where did this fail? All that kind of stuff. And it, it's amazing. It's like CSI for construction and uh, it, exactly. it's pretty wild sometimes. Your, your specialty in particular is more on um, yourself, I'm saying, is more on the scheduling and also claims, expert witness yes. side of things, like when things go wrong. Yes. What, could you tell us just like a little bit about what what's involved with that? You know, because an expert witness, like I've done expert witnesses, that could be pretty broad, right? Like when mm -hmm. would someone ask for you or a lot of the folks that are in the local Boston office to kind of get involved on a project that might have gone wrong or something like that? So um, think of us as commercial managers. So that's cost, contracts, and schedule. That's what we get involved in. Typically, that's that's what this group that I'm part of gets involved in. And and so you know we're not we're not going to necessarily tell you how to staff a project or where to buy your materials, or how to manage it or or you know how to bid it necessarily. But whenever um, there's commercial issues. Uh, that deal with the cost contract or schedule, that's where we get involved. You know, a, a lot of times we're brought in, say, before the project, and um, we can help with um, big risk assessments. Uh, oftentimes I get calls from clients to come in and review the front-end documents and try to identify things that they need to be aware of, things to be careful of, things that might cause them to say, hey, this project's too risky, I don't want to bid it. Uh, so I identify these areas, that's, we identify them and we, we put them up, we discuss them, and then, then they can be accounted for within the bid. Um, you know, perfect example is uh, the contract, the contract is uh, the bid documents provide, say, 18 months to do a contract to, to uh, per, um, perform all the work. And we'll come in and do help work with the client and do a preliminary schedule to see if everything that can be done, that has to be done, can fit within that 18 months. And if, if it can't fit, you either have to build in acceleration into your bid and then go forward or raise your hand and say, there's no way that this work can physically get done within the eight months. Ask a bid question and see if you can get it extended. And that actually happened once hmm. um, um, where we got extended time. So could you tell me, it's funny, you started to answer it. My kind of follow up on that was what is the bid risk assessment? So you're saying even prior to them getting the job before they put that number in, yeah. you're taking a look in that. So schedule is part of that. Uh, is there anything it, else? It can be. Um, just looking at the contract and different contract provisions, every contract is different. Uh, some are more onerous than others. Some of them, um, you know, they, they, they'll have, a lot of them have standard boilerplate type language, but a lot of them have uh, things that the owner or whoever you're bidding for, you know, if I'm representing a sub, I'm bidding to the general, if I'm representing a general and bidding to the owner, um, those entities may have refined their uh, their contracts along the way because things happened in the past. So they've revised their contracts to cover that. You identify those things and at least you bring them to light so that your client knows what they're getting in, what they're getting into. What would be an example of something that might raise a flag on the contract side? Uh, well, again, you know, aside from not having enough. Uh, you know, having having an overly aggressive schedule, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's one thing that you look for. But sometimes there's um, there's uh, you know excessively onerous notice provisions, or there'll be things like you know one of the hot buttons is the no damages for delay clause. How is it written? Um, some of them are broader than others, so you 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 just want to identify these things and have a discussion with your client and say, okay, listen, if if this if something like this should happen on the project, you know, you're either going to be, uh, you're, you're going to be reimbursed or you're not going to be reimbursed, or it's going to be a very difficult road to try to get uh, compensation. So you just have a conversation with them. Uh, some, sometimes um, contractors will, will, will actually build in a little bit of, um, of uh, padding into the, uh, into their bids just to possibly account for, for in the case, something should happen and they know they're not going to get reimbursed they don't want to end up losing money on the job so they may pad their their bid a little bit to account for that and then if it does happen then they're good hmm. you know it depending on what they think the likelihood of some event like that happening would be hmm. 
Okay. So pre, that that's the pre-bid side of things. And then we also get involved in, in, you know, we could do a preliminary schedule, but, you know, it's just trying to help plan how the, how the, how they're going to execute the project. You can, you can put together some preliminary schedules just to see how it all works and how, what's going to happen when, and hmm. will you have to work in the winter? Will you not? Do you have to build an acceleration? So that's all pretty bit. Okay. Uh, it, and then, then you guys move on and presumably, you know, you do, you offer support on putting together a baseline schedule potentially right. or. So then in the, in the construction phase, it really breaks down into before problems or after problems. Okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, before problems would be, you know, again, we could put a baseline schedule together for the, uh, for the client and then do schedule updates for them. Um, which a lot of, a lot of companies do, but because we get involved in so many troubled projects, you know, we're able to understand what's going to happen if you don't do things a certain way. We also, being professional schedulers, we incorporate uh, very good uh, schedule practices within, within our, with, with the schedules that we build. So you might have somebody who works for a general contractor who does scheduling, but unless you do it for a living and have been trained in it and have seen how things go wrong, you don't necessarily know how to properly build one in the event something should happen, you're well positioned. So bringing us in helps that overall picture. But one of the things that we do is we incorporate change management as we go. And, um, and that's something that sometimes gets left off the table and not accounted for. And then you end up with a schedule that becomes meaningless because it's not recording everything and it's not accounting for everything that's going on in the project, and and it turns into problems down the road. Now, especially understanding that, so we have everything from college students to CEOs that listen to this. So, for the folks that might not be as experienced, could you talk about you know, um, I mean, everyone understands a change order, but could you talk about when you say to account for? Mm -hmm change order management like how how are you accounting for that and what is what is that what is that what is it and what does it look like sure so let's just say you build a baseline schedule and you start to uh, work the project so now you're say you're two months into the schedule and now you've done a couple schedule updates where you're recording actual progress uh, actual start and complete dates and you're you know just going along and all of a sudden you hit say a different site condition and now your work is stopped Okay, what we do is we would say, okay, let's build a schedule fragment, which is a little, a little mini schedule. Let's, let's get together and figure out what it should look like and then incorporate it into the schedule. So we, it would start with, you know, the first activity would be encounter different site conditions. Next activity was notify the owner. Next activity was um, awaiting response. Mm -hmm. um, then you get the response and then uh, you may have to request a change order, there may be pricing for the change order, there may be procuring materials. And then when all that gets done, you execute the additional work and then you continue on your way. So you've just created, you know, it could be a one activity subnet, it could be 12 activities, but you create mm. something and you put it in the schedule and you, you incorporate it right then and there so that now your schedule is actually recording history. It's reflecting history. So it records the fact that you encountered a different site condition, records the fact that you wrote a notice letter to the owner, and now you are currently waiting for their response. And you're anticipating that, you know, a, a lot of times you know whether or not there's going to be extra work involved or a redesign. You know, if you if there's a huge piece of ledge right where you need to put a manhole, that manhole's not going there or you're going to have to blast it out. It's one or the other, but something changes. Mm -hmm. You have to wait for the owner to tell you what they want to do, but something's going to happen. So you, you try to build not only what happened, but what you think is going to happen into the schedule, just so all of the managers on the project, whether they be the, uh, the, the, the managers for the general contractor or the managers for the owner um, or, or even the owner's, project, uh, the, uh, the owner's project manager, everybody can understand the implications of what could happen here mm -hmm. so that you can make responsible, informed decisions as to what to do. Yeah, I think if you don't put that in the schedule, you're, you're basically flying blind but yeah and i only could imagine like trying to go back 18 months later and say oh this this cost us you know two weeks well, right how'd you get two weeks out of that we just moved a manhole 
Okay, but it's and if you could pull out something and be like, okay, here's the date we asked you for this. This is the date right. we got the response, and now you're not trying to dig through paperwork, right? I mean, exactly. just and do you? Are, are you I mean, I'm sure everybody's different, but um, I would assume it would make sense to be sharing that schedule with the owner as it's happening in real time, right? Absolutely, because the owner needs to make informed decisions. It's it's mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, nobody has a problem raising their hand and saying something's going to cost more. You know, I, you know, we have a different site condition. Uh, we've got to do something different. It's probably going to cost more. But not a lot of times or not, not always do they say, and we're going to need additional time. So you put that in the schedule. So you now you're, you're, have, you're tracking, you know, a lot of times general contractors will set up a separate cost code so they can start tracking the additional cost associated with the change. Hmm. But you need to set up a subnet in the schedule so you can start to track the additional time associated with the change. What happens if, if you don't put um, change management into your schedule, you'll end up, you'll end up having an activity in the schedule that shows it started say it was supposed to take 10 days and you know you were you were you you started it on time and then on day two you hit a different site condition and then you were stopped so that activity in the schedule just seems to go on and on and on with no explanation so say the so say the activity didn't get completed for 30 days it looks like it took 20 days longer with no explanation in the schedule as to why hmm. if you build that intelligence into the schedule and you you work with the owner everybody knows why yeah. and you know and and that of course assumes that that work is on the critical path it may not be in the critical path you need to know that as well it could impact the overall project completion it could not if you don't put it in the schedule and let the schedule calculate the critical path you'll never know so mm. there's a very good reason why to incorporate change management as you go and I would have to imagine just the simple factor, the simple fact of an owner watching that schedule be built and be shared with them. Mm -hmm. You know, if I had something across my desk and said, okay, I'm, I'm looking at, we just lost seven days already and we're not, we yep. haven't even gotten an answer back from the, you know, the geotech or whoever's responsible for the situation. I, as an owner, I'm going to take action on that. Right. So even yeah. if it doesn't mean that you're recouping time at the end, it's actually going to help get you the answers you need. That's yeah. right. You know, it's very important that both sides understand they have responsibilities and they need to take action. How do you want to do this? Do you want to, do you want to keep moving with the life cycle of the project? So you then could, you know, you, you can handle anything on the scheduling side, presumably, right? You could build the CPM, baseline yeah. schedule, schedule yeah. updates, all that yeah. kind of stuff. But then we get to the end of the project. Mm -hmm. presumably let's go with the fact if you weren't on the project is usually how it works. I'm assuming and you'll get, you get called in after the fact and says, okay, we have an issue here. What are some of the issues that you would get called in for? So we would get called in for, you know, the pro, you know, typically the project's late, you know, and, and if we're brought in by a general contractor, it's, you need to help me put a time extension request together or the project or my labor, uh, tripled from what my planned labor and it was because all this was going on there was there was you know I wasn't able to build the project as as planned um, and I need you to help me submit a request for an equitable adjustment so that I can recover my additional labor cost or the additional cost so usually something has gone wrong uh, and uh, and we're brought in after the fact and then how, like, how do you go about proving those things? Well, in, in the situation of a, a schedule delay, that's where you would come in and, and say, okay, hopefully there were schedules prepared and hopefully those schedules were prepared uh, in such a way that um, the owner, they were submitted and the owner approved them and accepted them. So now you have good schedules to work with. You just need to go back and figure out what happened. So it's kind of like, you know, you walk into the room, the body's dead. Now you have to figure out what killed it. Mm -hmm. okay? So then you go back and uh, you do a forensic windows analysis, right? Just like they bring in the forensic forensic uh, people when the body's dead, right? Um, we come in, we do a forensic analysis, but we usually do what's called a forensic windows analysis where we look window by window or month by month what's what's happened on the project. And, uh, and you, it's a tedious process. 
um, but it enables you to figure out what happened on the project. Um, you might have to do some research because again, if change management was not incorporated into the schedule, you need to go and figure out why an activity took 30 days instead of 10. Mm. So you're having conversations, you're looking at meeting minutes, you're looking at letters, you're looking at project documentation, you're interviewing staff to try to figure out what happened, why did that take so long? Um, and then you, you see if it's on the critical path or not, you apportion delays, you tab, just, uh, tabulate them all up, and then you come up with a complete uh, apportionment of the delays, and then you hopefully sit down and try to work them out. Hmm. Are you, presumably you're looking at the contract as well? Well, the contract, yes. <clears throat> the contract is the backbone of everything we do. And, and that's a very important lesson uh, that everybody should know. My form, one of my former bosses, Charlie Madden, who was at Modern Continental, used to tell me, contracts are great until you have to pull them out of the draw. <laughs> hmm. But it's, it's very important that everybody has a general understanding of the contract and what the requirements are, because it does dictate a lot of how you have to do things, what you're compensated for, how you get compensated for things, how you price things up, how you do a schedule analysis. Hmm. Uh, so, so everything starts. So. So that the first thing we do is we get the contract, we look through it, we see what the ground rules are, and then we go about doing our analysis accordingly. Yeah, because if contractually you're not allowed to recoup certain things, it's it's a waste of time to go back and look for all that stuff, right? You got to kind of see, okay, where what can we rightfully under the contract be compensated for, whether it's right. time or money, right? Right. Yeah. Ex exactly. And it, and it maybe maybe some maybe some of the uh, things. Are definites you, you can definitely be compensated for certain things other things could be more difficult or could be impossible so you kind of set the risk assessment of each of the different types of issues that are going on or, or different ways you're trying to get compensated and and you approach you approach your request uh, accordingly mm. uh, and, and then you set expectations with your client uh, accordingly as well yeah and are you doing any type of analysis like you ever get to the place where you're uh, someone brings you in and says you know that we want to try and you know scratch back some of this money we lost and spent and all that kind of stuff and you look at it and say the time it's going to take us to research this and make your case and then whatever you're going to spend in legal fees because we've already determined the owner's going to dig in you know, you're better off cutting your losses. Do you ever, like, are you ever helping a client with that calculation? We definitely get involved what I will term as business decisions mm -hmm. uh, because there, there's a cost benefit. You know, we, um, you know, we come in, we cost money. Um, your attorneys cost money. And in the, and, and here's the general contractor trying to decide how much money do I spend? Do I do I try to put something together and try to get it resolved on my own, or do I try to invest some money, develop a better product? I, it increases my chances of recovery, you know. And how do I go forward? Uh, sometimes the numbers are so big that you don't have a choice. The the general has to bring in someone like us. They have to bring in their attorneys. They have to fight because mm. it, it sometimes it means whether the company uh, goes under or not. Mm. Yeah. But there's other there's other types of things that we do as well, not just schedule. So uh, you were you were asking about uh, the expertise in litigation. I'm a schedule delay and delay damages expert, and that's generally what I get involved in, and that's generally what I testify to in court. Mm -hmm. But we also get involved in, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, JS Held has uh, staff that gets involved in material. Uh, material failures, defective workmanship. They also get involved with standard of care issues on design. Uh, designs are becoming uh, more and more of an issue these days. Incomplete designs, uh, incorrect designs. They seem to be, the drawings don't seem to be uh, getting better these days. I hear that a lot from my clients. Uh, so there's a lot of design related issues. So sometimes we'll get involved and try to help build an argument as to whether or not um, the, the issue that happened is design related or material related or defective workmanship because you know a lot of times people have, the, the fingers are pointing everywhere when there's a dispute yep. and we'll get involved and try to help figure all that out or, or even mismanagement right and mismanagement as well 
The construction um, manager or the owner or whoever just mis mismanages the project and the, the or the process, I should say, and then the GC right. or the subcontractor suffers because of that. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, every, everybody has to realize that they have a responsibility, even with a design build contract, where the owner typically wants to do design build because they can throw more of the responsibility against the design builder and they basically feel they can throw their hands up and say, there's nothing I'm responsible for anymore. Well, that's not true. Mm. Every contract, every party to the contract has responsibilities. And a lot of times what we see is poor administration of the contract, um, you know, letting decisions go on and on and on or taking too long to review submittals or, or an owner not, not uh, managing the designer um, so that, you know, the, the, uh, the change management process or the design submit or the um, submittal process review process is handled the way it should be, which results in impacts to the contractor. Hmm. You know, same thing with construction managers. If they're not effectively managing all the subs and coordinating all the subs, one sub could get particularly hit and there's nothing he can do about it. He doesn't have control over all the other subs. Hmm. You know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a control issue, not just a coordination issue, but a control issue. If, if I'm if I'm the drywall sub and, and I can't control the plumber, I have to coordinate with him. But if I can't control what he does, it doesn't. And I get hurt by him. There's nothing I can do. Construction manager needs to coordinate and control all of that because they hold the contracts. They control everybody. Hmm. So they have a responsibility to try to get the whole project to sing, to work like a, a well-oiled machine. And if, and if they just throw their hands up and say, I don't do anything, it's all up to you guys. Chaos. Problems. It's chaos. Yeah. It's funny. I just, I haven't published it yet, but I had a, um, a subcontractor on recently. And that was one of the discussions we were having. He said, you know, if I know the P certain PMs that I'm working for or supers that are running the job, that impacted how aggressively he'll go after something. Cause he's like, I know that things yeah. are going to be managed well and right. I can be profitable and things will be done. He's like, other times you get on, you know, with the CM that has their C or D team out there and it's a disaster. It's a huge, it's a huge risk for them. Now, so that, that goes back to the, the uh, risk assessment, the pre-bid risk assessment we were talking about earlier. Mm. You know, that's, that's part of the discussion. You know, who is the owner or, or who is the project manager for the owner or who is the, you know, PM for the general, if you're a sub, who's a super. Um, these are, that's part of the discussions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now you talked about, um, you know, you gave an example of like, let's say for instance, someone had spent triple the labor they, they had anticipated. If you are trying to figure out the labor side of things, is that, that's less of like forensic scheduling and more, would that rely more on the contract that you're going to, or, or schedule? Cause presumably what you're saying is like, okay, well, the anticipation was we were going to be able to get an entire floor in one shot. And they ended up giving us one room at a time, and it took us triple the labor to do the to do every floor. Right. How do you go about trying to um, address labor issues like that? It, it seems like it would be different than time. Um, it, it can be. Um, so you you know, of course, it starts with the contract. What were the representations made in the contract, um, which is what we based our bid on? So, and how did those representations change? And how did that impact me? And then what am I entitled to under the contract uh, because of those changes? So we have to understand all of that first, you know, and then we try to um, make an assessment as to, you know, when the events would happen. And we plot that against when the labor spiked and we try to correlate um, so we can establish cause and effect that certain events happen. My labor went like this. Um, you know, ho hopefully uh, you've got a period of the project where you are unimpacted and you can show that you were meeting your planned labor and then you enter a, an impacted period. And now you can contrast that to the unimpacted period and people can uh, start to see, ah, I, I see, I can see the connection. I see how things went. You know, had you not been impacted here, you would have probably done the same level of productivity that you did in the unimpacted period. Okay. Yeah, that's it, right? Because I was thinking about it, and I was saying this is that's really hard to prove, right? But yeah, if you have that window where you're unimpeded, then you have something to measure against. 
and you can you can show that. But if you don't have that, that becomes pretty difficult, right? It can it can be. Yep, it can be. It's you know it's it's um it's certainly not as concrete and clear as someone saying here you know here's a change order to um, you know put in granite countertops versus Formica. Hmm. That's pretty easy. Everybody can understand the additional direct cost in that. Yeah. Um, but you know the labor productivity becomes more of an issue. So you must have, uh, I mean, you just have so much experience in this. So I imagine you must have things that you know, you know, are just, these are the things that always put people in a bind. Like if you end up in litigation or testifying, there must be some patterns there, right? What are the type of things that you see that usually are what end you up put you ends up putting you in the seat to have to testify well um and we've kind of been talking about this throughout but you know incomplete designs um that that always ends up uh typically always ends up in issues um you know no no design you know i, I wouldn't i'm not sitting here saying designs need to be perfect um and i'm not sitting here saying that no no contract uh, should anticipate changes because changes happen and thank God they do because I make a pretty good living at it. <laughs> but for changes, I'd be out of a job. But, um, but um, seriously, you know, every, every, every contract, is, things come up or the owner wants to make a change or something happens and changes happen. In fact, um, a lot of owners will, bit, will put in contingencies in their budgets for changes, unexpected changes or things that happen. So uh, I'm not talking about like your normal run-of-the-mill things, but um, a lot of a lot of the projects that are coming out now, uh, they could be being rushed. You know, maybe the designer isn't given enough time. Maybe um, uh, things need to get out on the street because we, we're going to miss uh, funding. So you have to meet a certain deadline, and if the design is complete or not, you have to issue it because you'll, you'll lose funding. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why designs are coming out the way they are but they result in problems. Um, not all of them result in major problems or delays to the project. They may be able to be worked out, but depending on the parties and, and, and how they want to work them out, that, that plays into it as well. Sometimes people are in denial and they'll just let things go on and on and on, and it doesn't help the situation. It just makes it worse. Proactive management is the best thing to do for all sides, owner, designer, contractor. So designs. Um, we also mentioned um, inadequate uh, administration of the contract uh, by, by all sides, uh, letting something go on too long and not recognizing your responsibilities and, and being proactive to take care, you know, to, to manage your responsibilities. That becomes problems. Um, poor communication is becoming more and more of an issue. Um, a lot of people, uh, you know, I mean, just think about, and, and this is not, meant to be you know an insult at all but a lot of the younger people that are coming out they're more geared on emails and texting mm -hmm. okay as opposed to face-to-face -face talking to someone that's finding its way into the communication on a project as well as people just not talking to each other because they're they're upset with somebody and they don't want to talk or whatever um, or uh, a lot of times um, a contractor might not want to raise an issue with the owner because they know they're going to get upset about it. If, if, it, if it involves extra time and money, they're reluctant to want to bring it up um, so they don't communicate it. So communication becomes an issue. I think the, the more you communicate, I, I tend to want to over-communicate, even to the point where people say, oh, that guy, you know, he's a pain because he's always, he's always talking to me. He's always, you know, letting me know he's over-informing me. I'd rather over-inform you than under-inform you. And, mm -hmm. You know, it just helps. And then uh, an another thing is uh, lack of documentation becomes an issue on projects. So, you know, we can't, can't stress enough how much you need to document, as well as, you know, you need to communicate, verbally communicate with someone, but then follow up with an email and just confirm our conversation mm -hmm. so that you have a record of the conversation because you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes people experience selective amnesia um, or or they retire and they're not around anymore. And the next guy who comes in says, I don't know anything about 
what you talked about with him. So we're not going to do that. It's very important to document things. Take photographs. Everybody has a phone now. There's no reason to not take photographs. Take a photograph, set up a system whereby you can just email it to yourself and then you file it. And so you have these photographs available to, to show certain things. Uh, but communicate, text or email, you know, or you know, send letters if need be, but text and communicate and, and emails are, are fine um, to document certain events. But it's very, very important for all sides to document because again, you know, I, I, I do typically, it's just the way my practice for me personally has gravitated, but I typically end up representing uh, general contractors. And, uh, and I can't, I can't stress enough, um, to, you know, to make sure that you document, um, you know, make sure that you document, um, with, with, you know, I, I stress with my clients to make sure you document. It's very important to do this. Um, and, uh, okay. So documentation, um, inadequate design communication, um, you know, and, and use the term inadequate, inadequate administration of contract. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, and that that goes both ways. Again, you know, the owner not managing the designer, or the owner not processing change orders fast enough has an impact. Um, the owner for the contractor not giving a uh, not you know not uh, providing a notice letter uh, when something happens. They're required to notify the owner. Hey, something changed. I'm raising my hand, so I'm letting you know about it, so you can do something about it. Yeah. That's the whole reason why you have to notify the owner, so you can give them the opportunity to do something about it. Mm -hmm. It's only fair, right? Yeah. It's it, it. What what I was getting at earlier is, although I represent general contractors, I often come in and just trying to understand what happened, just 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 trying to find the truth. I say we're truth seekers, right? Just trying to understand what happened, you know, whether whether it, it hurts or helps my client. Let's just understand what happened, hmm. and then you can figure out how best to approach it. So documents help you help you do that. Yeah, that's it's funny. That was going to be my question as you were as you were speaking. Was do you ever get to the point where you start digging and you say, "Hey, uh, you know, I'm going to do my best here, but I'm looking at this and you know." There's more dirt on uh, your boots than his over there. You should probably just cut your losses because, yeah, they did X, Y, and Z wrong, but you did A through M wrong. So, like, yeah, Ab absolutely. I have, I have those conversations all the time. You know, you want your client to know, no matter who you're representing, mm -hmm. you know, where they stand in the fight, um, you know, where, where are their pros, where are their cons. Um, because you need to set expectations. You know, anybody who comes into a situation to represent someone and starts slamming the table and saying, I can get you this, you were screwed, you were wrong, blah, 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 we can do this, we can do that. You have to, you have to, you know, you, you have to take that with a grain of salt because there is no, there is yeah. no black and white. I live in the gray and there's no black and white. There's always an argument one yeah. way or the other. Uh, there's, yeah. there's always evidence for and against, and you need to understand that so you so you can make an informed decision and set ex and set realistic expectations so that you can hopefully resolve the dispute. Because if you think you're a hundred percent right and you're entitled to everything, you won't stop. You'll take it all the way to court. And believe me, you you don't want to go to court. Yep. You want to. Yeah. I've I've been on one of those. I've, I've been in on something like that where the owner was just so hell-bait and you know, it's like he was just doing a kamikaze mission exactly like, you're out you're out of your mind like but he 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 crashed and burned but yeah. and I, I mean i have to imagine you've come across people where or situations where you say hey you know what you're 100 percent right here but you didn't document properly and right. the other side did a lot of documenting you didn't do a document you're, you're right but you don't have the documentation. Like, do you, do you see that as an issue as well sometimes? Yes, I do. I do. It's, yeah. you know, it's what's on the project record, right? Mm -hmm. What is, what does the project record look like? That's why it's always important to respond. When you get a letter, respond. When you get an email, respond, no matter who you are. Mm -hmm. Because if, 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 
you know, there's there's owners out there, there's owners out there that will get letters from contractors and they just never respond. And it puts the owner in a bad position because mm. things just go on and on and on for months. And then, you know, picture yourself in front of a judge and I'm holding up 12 letters saying, I told the owner 12 times that I couldn't work and I didn't do anything. It, it took him nine months to come out of the trailer and, and just, you know, you know, give me some verbal direction to do something. But, but, you know, and, and it just doesn't help the same thing. You know, it can go against the contractor as well. If they get, um, you know, you know, some sort of a, a letter from the owner uh, citing them for not complying with the contract or, or whatever, providing substandard materials, providing substandard materials, you need to respond. You need to make sure that the project record reflects, you know, what you believe the situation to be. Hmm. So we've talked about kind of the two ends of the spectrum, like how to do things right. And then what happens when it goes wrong? How about kind of that middle point where, um, you know, you hear the term used like rec recovery schedule. Sure. Or, okay. Things are starting to go off in the wrong direction. And we know that just a couple degrees off ends up, you know, 90 degrees off by the end. Do you guys ever get brought in to say, Hey, let's, we need to get this train back on the tracks and you know, it's not, we're not going to litigation, but the, we're not trending in the right direction. Are you ever asked to do that kind of thing or is it not really what you guys do? We, we definitely get involved in that. Um, it's called, you know, mitigation, you know, you're trying to mitigate delay. Um, typically when we're involved, we are doing the schedules as you go. So we're, we're incorporating change management. And this is another reason why it's, it's so important to incorporate change management as you go, realistic change management. And I don't mean, you know, just saying, okay, putting it, putting in an activity, one activity that says encounter different site condition. And then it just picks up from there like nothing else has happened. You need to build in reality of what, what actually happened and what you think could happen. Because now when you hit calculate and schedule calculates critical path and it kicks out 20 days, now you can say, hey, everybody, if this scenario should happen, we're going to be 20 days late. What can we do about it now? So you identify these impacts now so they can be proactively managed and hopefully mitigated. Mm. And is that where, uh, sorry, forgive me for interrupting. Uh, is that where you kind of, I've heard you say in the past, you use like schedule as a tool, right? Is right. this using schedule as a tool? Yes, it is. Um, uh, it, it, it is. I mean, the, the schedule, so, so I've been around long enough that, Schedules, schedules on a lot of projects were a requirement, but you would produce a schedule, you'd submit it, it would get approved, you'd take it, you'd stick it in a drawer, and that's the last time you saw of it. You saw the schedule, and people would just go out and build the project. And, and it wasn't as important as it is today to finish on time, because usually the owners and the contractors would kind of work out a time extension. They just say, oh, yeah, this happened, that happened. All right, I'll give you another 60 days. And things kind of worked out. It was no big deal. But when the Boston Harbor project happened and the big dig after that, every day ended up costing a lot of money. So it wasn't a matter of I'll just give you another 30 days or 60 days or whatever. It was a matter of, oh, my God, I have liquidated damages in this contract for $75,000 a day. Hmm. So. I have to fight for every day or the contractor will say it's costing me $100,000 a day or $50,000 a day for every day I'm out here longer. Yeah. I need to get a time extension. I need to get recovery of this cost. So because of the liquidated damages and the increasing amount of daily overhead it takes to manage some of these mega projects for contractors, time became much, much, much more sensitive during that Boston Harbor big dig period. It mm. changed everything. And, and then that was actually driven by Federal Highway. So it's it's nationwide as well. But now people are saying, okay, I've got to pay more attention to my schedules. I've got to make them more accurate. I've got to use them to actually manage this project. I have to look at the critical path activities and make sure none of them are late. I need to look at the um, subcritical, the, the subcritical activities that are just the near critical activities, rather, 
that are close because if any of those delay get delayed, they may take over the critical path and now I'm late again. So they start looking at the schedule and using it as a management tool. When do you need to get to the point where you have a quality, sophisticated schedule, right? You could have a small paint and carpet TI job. Mm-hmm. It can be on a bar graph on an eight and a half by 11. It'll do the trick, right? right. You, we don't need anything elaborate. When do you start needing to say, okay, I need a CPM schedule that we have a baseline that we're updating on a regular basis. We're doing two week or three week look aheads and really putting like those good scheduling practices into place? Well, you know, keep in mind that most all of the public projects require a schedule and they tell you there's a detailed scheduling specification telling you how you have to build it, how you have to update it, what you can and cannot do. Very, very detailed and you're required to do it. So a lot of contracts are like that. On the other side of things, it becomes more of a uh, preference uh, as to how the project manager or the superintendent wants to manage the job, just think of the schedule as a big to-do list. So if you sat down at the beginning of the project and said, "All right, I have to, I'm going to write down everything I need to do to get to reach the project completion, so that I can just go through and start checking boxes and say, "Yeah, I did that, I did that, I did that." So at the end, you've checked all the boxes, you're done. Okay. What a schedule does is it takes all those your little post-it notes or your little all your to-do list and puts them on a time scale. So you can say, okay, how long is it going to take me to do this one or to do that one or to this one? And you connect them all together logically because some things have to happen before other things. You know, you can't pour the foundation until you dig the hole, right? So, so there's certain natural logic connections. You put them all together and you put them into the schedule and then you have the schedule calculate a critical path and the critical path tells you how long it's going to take. So. Um, it becomes, um, you know, it becomes a preference by the project manager. Do I have enough in my head? Can I manage enough? Of, you know, there's, there's a lot of activities to do, but I think I can manage them in my head because it's not insurmountable. You know, I've got my own way of doing things. I keep Excel spreadsheets or I just, you know, I, I have a checklist or things like that. And I know typically how long it takes to do this, that, the other thing. So you can you can do it that way. But sometimes, you know, some of these projects, they'll be, 10, 15, 20,000 activities in a schedule. You can't keep all that in your head. You know, so it's really, a, it's really, you know, dictated by contract or, or preference by the project manager. Now there's some, what I call like super intense level scheduling, right? Where you're cost loading uh, or just resource loading in general. So cost, labor, yeah. all these type of things. When do you think it makes sense to start resource loading schedules and at what and in in what and I imagine like there's a point where like the phrase that I use was like this diminishing returns right like yeah you can do all this stuff but the, the value is just not there we're not really that good at things like what's the what's the sweet spot for the amount of data that you put into a schedule where it's worth it versus okay you're just sticking extra data in there and you're not really getting um, much value on it well, so again, a lot of it comes back to the contract requirements. So there are certain government contracts that will require uh, resource loading and cost loading. And I differentiate resource loading and cost loading. Some people say resources is cost. I say cost is cost. Resources are things like labor and equipment. Okay, so those are the three things you would load a, load a schedule with, labor, equipment, and, and money. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, if you're required, you're required and it's a given and you have to put it in. Okay. Yeah. But assuming you're not required, then the question is, should I, or shouldn't I? So then you have to ask yourself, okay, if I go through the effort it's going to take to do this, am I going to use the data and, and what would I use it for? So a lot of times when you load, when you cost load something, it helps you produce a cash flow curve. So now the owner of the company or the owner, uh, the owner of the company, say you're a general contractor, the owner of the company can kind of plan when they're going to be paid for certain things. And that might help them plan for other things going on in the company. So they can plan their cash flow. On the other side, the owner of the facility needs to understand when they need to have cash available to fund the payment requisitions. So it helps the owner plan cash flow as well. So that's, you know, so if you're going to, if you want to plan your cash flow, then you cost load it. 
on the other hand, you resource load it, um, it's, it's very good for the general contractor so that they can see, okay, I resource load all these activities. Let me, it, so now I know when I need to bring on another crew or 10 more people or 20 more people. So, it, so I can plan ahead. Um, the other thing it, it allows me to do is see if there's any spikes. You know, for example, I go from 10 people to 50 people down to five people. Well, that doesn't make sense because I'm not going to be able to get 40 people and then lay them off the next month. So now I need to go through and try to level out my resources so yeah. that I can see, ramp them up, keep them, maintain the crew, and then ramp them down, start to lay them off gradually. Because that's what typically happens. If, if, you, don't, if you don't do that, if, if you don't take your schedule, your, your schedule activity, try to rearrange them, resequence them so that you can level off your, your workload, you may end up having people there inefficiently or not having enough people when you need them. Mm -hmm. It does help in the planning of the resources. But again, you have to take that data and use it. Am I going to take the data and do something about it? Mm. And if you're the type of person that says, yeah, I could definitely use that tool, then you do it. Yeah. And maybe it's you do it on the front end and because ideally you want to see what, like a nice bell curve? Yes, you would like to see that. And you would you would put all this in the front end. <clears throat> and then and then hopefully um, you know, you may need to tweak it along the way a little bit. Certainly when you're adding in change orders, they need to be cost loaded. But um, and sometimes what happens in schedules is you'll build a schedule and then as you get closer to actually doing the work, you're replanning it with the field crew. You might take those activities, let's say there's 10 activities, you might break them down into a finer level of detail as to actually how you're going to do the work, right? And now you need to decide, do I recost load all of those individual activities or not? So, you know, it, it kind of becomes a situation of when does the management tool end up managing the manager instead of the manager managing the tool? You know, it's one yeah. of those things, you know, um, and, and it's yeah. kind of gut feel but certainly you could start off cost and resource loading your baseline and then you could still use that as a tool yeah and it seems like a very much more of like a thirty thousand foot tool right to go back to your let's say it's an office suite that you're fitting out that's a two thousand square feet and you're like 10 people 50 people five people like all right well we're not fitting 50 people in this space as a cm never mind even if i'm not supplying the labor myself Right. So that can kind of raise a flag and allow you to kind of manage things a little more effectively. And right. can it almost be a tool that you're saying, OK, we were supposed to, you know, wreck three uh, on a big project. We were supposed to wreck three million last month. Right. We wrecked one point four million. We've got a problem. Right. Where's the problem? Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's kind of more ways to see your project. Right. Because you might be missing something. If you're like, right. oh, no, it says we're supposed to be drywall on the third floor. We're drywall on the third floor. I'll set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, why do we only bill, you know, 50% of what we were supposed to on our cash flow curve, right? Or, right. right. So, and again, schedule's a tool, right? Right. Where you're exactly. looking at it and it's helping guide you, per se. Exactly. Um, so if you have a project manager that appreciates those things and wants to do it, then you do it. Mm -hmm. But if you have a project manager who has other ways to manage the project and chooses not to, then then you don't because there's no sense doing it if the data is not going to be used. But at a certain point, and you know, there's no real way to say to define that point. But there's some point where you're just foolish if you're not. The dollar value isn't a good barometer of that. But uh, right. like you said, it's kind of in your gut. You're like, okay, we we got to make sure we're using good scheduling practices here, right. or else we're going to end up with problems down the line. And, you know, and sometimes it, it depends on your scheduling resources. You know, um, do you bring in a firm like us to do that and maintain it for you so that you can use it as a tool? Well, that costs money. Hmm. Okay, so do you build that into your budget or not? Sometimes uh, a general contractor will have their system project manager doing the scheduling. Okay, well, the system project manager probably has 25 other things that he's, he or she is responsible for. Yep. So now the question is, does he or she have time to drill down and reforecast the, the cash because you've split out the activities, you know? Hmm. So it, you know, it, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, where, where do I put my resources kind of question. Yeah. And how efficient are they at it? Right. Like exactly. 
here's the thing. I could renovate my kitchen. It would take me three weeks to hang one set of kitchen cabinets and they, and they would be passable, but it probably just makes more money. It makes more sense to spend a couple of bucks and have a carpenter hang them. Right. Um, I mean, I even see it with, with my business, right. With 241 plans, there's plenty of companies that are more than equipped of writing their own, but they look at it and just say, okay, it's going to take me, you know, 12 hours to do this. It's probably not going to be as good. I'd rather just spend the two grand and just be done with the thing. Right. And know that it's done right. And that's that calculation that you can make, but you have to factor all those things. Like, am I efficient at it? Will I follow through? Am I too busy? And I won't get to doing those good scheduling practices and doing the, the schedule updates when things go wrong. I forget the word you use for it, the subnet schedules and things like that. Right. Cause we all start off with really good intentions that we're going to do all this, but we all know we start off with the intentions that we're going to do all these reports and we're going to keep the schedule updated. And then the job happens. You know, like, like Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I love that line. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Um, I think we've got a good sense of, you know, how important schedules are kind of where they can go wrong. Hopefully people will be done with this and now maybe take a good look at what they're doing internally for, for scheduling. And hopefully it kind of maybe pushes them to see the value and really use schedules as they should be. Um, so they don't end up <laughs> in court and they don't end up doing, uh, having forensic schedulers have to come helicoptering in. Maybe take your scheduling and, um, you know, controls and and, and um, take that hat off for a second. And where do you just see generally, where do you see the construction industry being in, you know, one to two or two to five years? It doesn't have to be a set time, but where do you see us going? What do you think we're going to see more of and what do you think we're going to see less of in the future? And, and not, I'm not looking for you to kind of say, okay, I think the economy is going to do this or do that. But what's just maybe one thing that you um, think we might see more of or you might see less of? You can answer one or or both. I'm not sure. I, I think, uh, you know, a, a serious concern is with labor. You know, there's there's a labor shortage. So it's it's what are the things that are going to drive construction? I mean, we're always going to have to build treatment plants, buildings, schools. Um, mm. What are the th- it's it's what are the things that are going to help address labor shortage problems, or or the fact that you've got a different kind of a workforce that's coming out now. What 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 will it take to attract people into the construction industry um, mm. to get involved? Less people are going into uh, engineering, uh, civil engineering, and, and when they do, they don't necessarily stay. They go on to other things. So there's there's less engineers, so you're going to have less designers, less you know contractors, uh, less people to do the labor. So that the, the real question is is you know where does all that happen in the future? And I think uh, you know certainly automation um, and and in, in improvements in management um, to to try to make things a little bit more uh, streamlined and efficient, but attractive to other people to come in and get involved. It's a, it's a huge it's a huge issue. I think the average age of the union carpenters are in the fifties. Uh, I think it I think it's higher. <laughs> yeah. When you think about that, it keeps you up at night. Mm-hmm. Right? So what's going to happen with that? So um, I think you know obviously that needs to be addressed because uh, it's it's you know it's it's right it's that bubble is right out there. Yeah. So. Just to kind of uh, put it in a nutshell, so labor becomes an issue, and the question is, how do we both attract new people and find efficiencies via technology or automation or whatever to kind of help make up that gap, right? Right. I I mean, when you think about the people who are graduating from school and the things that they are learning and the things that that light them up, you know, a lot of it's computer-based, automation. Uh, whether it's uh, artificial intelligence or um, you know other other smart products that can be incorporated into the construction process, that's that's where that's where the, it needs to go, uh, because mm. you know it'll certainly. I mean, we we can we can still build things that we were always building them, 
uh, we won't be as efficient. But if we don't change some things, we're not going to, uh, you know, maybe we can build the same things, but do it with less people if we're more efficient. Yeah. And then maybe it, we can attract, attract more people if we're more efficient because of the new procedures and automations that we can build into the process. Yeah. When you talk about what the newer workforce gets excited about, I was reading an interesting article where it was a professor who was a engineering professor and he had a class on um, like modular and automated design and all that kind of stuff. And he was asked to open it up to the architectural students. And at first he had only one or two coming over. And the thought process historically has been that architects would not be fans of modular construction or prefabricated. Um, mm -hmm. But now he was saying the bulk of the students enrolled in that class are architecture students. Really? So even they're realizing that, I think they realize it, they probably are gravitating there for just like a sustainability and affordable housing kind of piece that, okay, we can build with less waste, um, mm -hmm. better quality and, you know, modular doesn't have to be so uh, stale as it used to be. And with little character, you can start to build some character into it now. So hopefully you're right that that next crop of employees will look at things differently and are lit up by different things. And maybe that helps solve that problem. But yeah. Yeah. all right, this was excellent, Bill. This was like a uh, master class in scheduling. So uh, I, I selfishly loved it. If nobody else likes it, uh, well, I, I loved it. So uh, you've got a, you've got a A from me. So that was great. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, I look forward to see what hell's going to do in the future. Cause you know, you guys are growing pretty intensively and, I think you must be excited to now have uh, a whole host of resources available. Um, I, I, I'm very excited. Um, you know, I'm, I'm recently with JSL. I'm only, only with them for three months now, but I'm very impressed by the amount of expertise in this company and the different types of expertise that's available. And it's exciting for not only me, but for my clients, uh, because it's kind of more of a one-stop shopping place where you know no matter what kind of an expert you need we have them hmm. and and it's nice for me because you know after nearly 40 years in the business um it's a whole other dimension that i get to get involved in yeah. it's very interesting and exciting for me for that but um i think it's just a great uh it's just a great fit for myself and uh and my guys and um, i continue to be impressed every day um, at, at, uh, this, just the camaraderie and the level of expertise. It's, it's, it's nice. It's refreshing. It's refreshing. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, for 40 years in, you still got a lot of energy for it. So that's great. That's what keeps me going. It's, it's, yeah. it, I keep saying, you know, I say this all the time because I get involved in disputes and issues. That's basically what I get involved in. Nobody mm -hmm. ever calls me and says, Hey, Bill, we had a great project. Come in and, you know, help us with the topping off syrup. No, yeah. I don't get that call. I get the call after the the train wreck has happened. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and so, and I keep saying to myself, it didn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. Mm. And, and, and it just really gets me aggravated a lot that things continue on the way they do. But they don't have to be that way. And that, and that's kind of what keeps driving me. It's like, I keep trying to, you know, change the world type thing, but uh, <laughs> it's not happen. But you're shaking what... your fist at the sky. Don't just stop. Yeah. yeah, yeah, awesome. All right, well, Bill, this is great. I loved it, and um, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Joe. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Hey, Mascons. Well, that was fantastic. Got to learn a lot about scheduling. A lot about what goes wrong when we don't do things right on the front end. And what I'm interested in is kind of JSL as a whole. As a whole. Um, I'm going to be potentially working with them to um, put together a scheduling class. That's got me excited. And uh, like I said before, um, when I was talking about the travelers thing, just when companies that get that deep into the corners and start to learn about whether it's scheduling, estimating, uh, you know, the forensic type stuff, that's that's quite interesting to me. So maybe there's a little bit more room to run here. 
we'll see what happens. Give me some feedback if you think you'd like to dig in on more of these um, you know, niche areas. I would love to do it. Uh, if you think that would be a great education for me to uh, add to the repertoire and bring on scheduling for the classes I teach, let me know about that as well. And as always, um, I'd appreciate it if you would like, share, and spread the word in any way you feel appropriate. Take care. My name is Martin Luther, but I'm considered the king. Yo, my beats pumped by the mic I clamp. I don't need an amplifier. My brain is the amp. I got the beat to make you tingle, make your body mingle. Like you got the fever for the flavor of a Pringle. We got say not so. I'm just like Picasso, a pioneer. I am here. Ask me how I got so fly. And the chance I can give him a new beginning. Steve